Talmud was decided. It was written in Tiberias. And also significant of this area. So these were the scholars, the Torah scholars. They were the ones who, like we were saying, understanding, being able to tell one thing from another, that's what the Gemara, what the Talmud is all about. It's, this is what Hashem has said to do. Now, here is how we do it. They explain to us how we do it. And they have to have the authority, which they're given down through the ages, they're given this from Moshe. They have the authority to decide on the Torah. And that is what the Talmud is about. You've heard of the Talmud. Well, that's what it's about. Deciding how we do it. And this was where these first scholars who were um, writing these things down, codifying the oral law, sat, was in Tiberias, here in the tribal area of Issachar. The last Sanhedrin dispersed, sat in Tiberias and was disbanded in Tiberias. And it was said that the next Sanhedrin, that the reinstitution of the Sanhedrin would also be in Tiberias. Interestingly, the Sanhedrin that we have now, that sits now, whatever you think of it, um, was reestablished, was started in the city of Tiberias. So that's very interesting also. And if you go to visit Tiberias, you'll see that there are many tombs of the sages in Tiberias. One of those, very famous one, is the Rambam, who is Rabbi Moshe bin Maimon, also known as Maimonides. So there were some other associations there in that little saying from the from the, the Sefer Yetzirah. Now the sages say that Abraham and Sarah learned Torah directly through their kidneys. Now how do we understand that? The kidneys are associated with conscience. It's the same as the kidneys filtering the impurities from our blood so that we can live. Well our conscience filters impurities from our lives if we're paying attention, if they're healthy. And so the kidneys are compared to the conscience. So Abraham and Sarah were said to have learned Torah directly through their kidneys. In other words, straight through their conscience. Because there was no written Torah at the time. So they were learning it straight through their consciousness. Directly from heaven. And so the Torah teaches us how to live our lives in a pure way. All of the Parsha that we read during the month of ER talks about purification talks about purifying our lives and I'm going to get to that in a minute we're going to go into one of the first Parsha of the month of ER and these things teach us not about being um, some esoteric sage off on a mountain top all by ourselves and being a hermit and blocking out the world no that's not the way we live the Torah the Torah teaches us how to live in the world how to live in the world in a pure way and how to lift, raise the world up to be a more holy place not that we have to separate ourselves from the world but that we learn how to be in the world in a pure way 
that's really more difficult. It's all about balance. And so this is a theme through all of the all of the readings of the Parsha in the month of Yar and all of the symbolism of the month of Yar. Like Taurus is an earth sign and it's about living in this world, not becoming like this world, but living in this world in a pure way. That for each mundane practice, like eating or anything that we do, that it can be done in a pure and holy way. That we lift up this physical realm into holiness. And this is what redemption is about. That we're looking forward to this world becoming rectified and becoming more like the way Hashem created it in the first place. Now the last thing I'm talking about in this little lesson here about the month of Iyar is the letter Vav. Now in Hebrew, the letter Vav is, only, is used in front of a word like the, like the word and. There's no separate word and in the Hebrew language. What you'll have is a vav that will become part of the next word. So you'll say this and this. It's the, it would be this, the, that, this. It becomes part of the next word. So it's like a hook. It hooks those things together. It connects things. So this is this is about connection. The vav is like connection. And what does the Torah do? The Torah connects us. The Torah connects us to Hashem. It connects us to each other. tells us how to have proper relationships with each other. And it even connects us to ourselves in a proper manner of who we really are. It wakes us up to who we really are. And numerically, Vav is the, letter, is the number six. And this is a number, and again, it's associated with the physical realm, the number six. And how is that? There were six days in creation to create this world. There were six millennium in our world for this span of time. You know, the Rampal talks about that, that in Hashem's plan, He gave this period of time to man for only a set period. It's not going to go on infinitely. Evil cannot reign in the world infinitely. It's this struggle that we're going through, the drama that we're going through, and it's all about learning how to purify ourselves in the right way. So there are six millennium in this world, in this period of time that Hashem has set. There's six directions in the physical world. There's east, west, north, south, and there's up and down. So there's six directions. There are six orders of the Mishnah, and there are six points of the Magandavi. Kind of interesting there too. So, the whole idea and the spiritual sense of Issachar, of course, was joy, and you can't really come to true joy unless you connect yourself to the Torah in a real way. And so, this is the whole lesson that I came up with for the month of Yar. And um, it's available on my website. You can see the address right here, and you can print it out for yourself. And this can be the beginning of your notebook. This can be 
the divider for the month of ER. You can get like a document protector and you can slip it in and that way you can have it available. And right here on the front is a little um, calendar that you can see. These are the partial readings for the month of ER. We start out with Tazria and Mitsura was the reading for this last Shabbat and it was a double reading. Now this coming Shabbat is the reading of Achremot and Kedushim. Now those are kind of long readings. That's coming up this next Shabbat. Then is Amor, which means speaking. And then Bahar Sinai. It's on the mountain. Ba is on the mountain of Sinai. And then Bechukote. Uh, Bechukotai, I'm sorry. And then the Midbar is the num book of numbers, is the last part of the month of Yar. And all of these, if you'll, if, while you're reading them, you will see a theme that runs throughout all of these about purification. And we're going to get into that first one, Tazria, in just a few moments. And you'll see that, that it's about purification. Because we're preparing ourselves for receiving the Torah. Just like every Pesach we say, it's not they came out of Egypt, I came out of Egypt. We take it personally. So, in the same way, every Shavuot, when we celebrate the giving of the Torah, we should be receiving the Torah all in a new way each year. We should be receiving the Torah anew. It's not they went to Sinai and received the Torah, I'm receiving the Torah. I'm receiving the Torah in a new way each year. And it's very interesting because one of the traditional readings of Shavuot, and we're going to get to that next month in Sivan, is the book of Ruth. And the book of Ruth, of course, is about this woman who was born non-Jewish. But she came to the Torah and she had a connection to the Torah. It's a really beautiful thing that this is one of the things, one of the traditional things that we do in the month of in the month of Sivan and in the readings on Shavuot about the giving of the Torah. And the theme of that, to me, I see, is that the Torah is given not just for Israel as a personal possession and no one else can have it, but it's open for all people. I mean, here was Ruth. Who's be, who was from the the nation of Moab whose beginnings were very very questionable and the lesson of that is that no matter where you're coming from Hashem is there and he's open to welcome you if you come in the right way and so Ruth came and she became a part of the Jewish people and not only a part of the Jewish people, the people of Israel, but she became the great-grandmother of the first king. The one that we call Messiah was, the, was had a grandmother from this foreign people. So it's a very interesting thing how the Torah is, has these stories and has these themes throughout it and our study of Torah that does embrace and encompass other people. So you should never feel like it doesn't. Because it absolutely does. Just one moment, please.
Now we're not going to really be able to get too far into both Parshot, but the two Parshot that were studied this last week, this last Shabbat, were Tazria and Metzora. Now the theme of these two Parshot is what is commonly called in English leprosy. Now you would wonder why in the world would the Torah devote two parshaot, three whole chapters of Leviticus to a theme, mostly to the theme of leprosy. And so, but there's more to it. There's more to it. But the th- but the idea of leprosy was a very important thing. The idea of purification was a very important thing. And that's why so much so much space in the Torah is devoted to this subject. But like I said, I'm going to be teaching from the Midrash. Now, I, I would encourage you to read from the written Torah. If you have not already read these, to go ahead and read them. Now, normally, when I teach this class, I'm going to be going through every single word of the written Torah and then tie it to the Midrash but I'm not going to do that tonight because we had so many other things to talk about before I got to it so tonight I want to just talk about what is in the Midrash now the first thing the way that the Parsha begins go to it The way the Parsha begins is talking about a woman giving birth. And it talks about the days in which she would be unclean after giving birth and and her time for being separated from her husband, her time for being ritually impure and she could not go to the temple. And that's what the written Torah says in the book of Leviticus. But connected to that is a very beautiful midrash that I want to share with you. And we have in my class on Thursday night talked a lot about the purpose of the soul in the world. So I want to just talk about this. I want to actually read it for you word by word from the midrash. Because it's really a beautiful story from the midrash. How special each soul is that comes into the world. It's very poetic, it's very beautiful, and very special. Uh, you find this actually in the tractate Mida in the Talmud. Very interesting tractate. The angel in charge of conception is called Lila. Now, Lila in Hebrew means night. It's interesting that this is the name of the angel in charge of conception. But this is when conception is supposed to take place, is at night. When the Almighty, and well, before I go on, I'll explain that, because we're told that Hashem created during the darkness. And so human body, a baby, is created also in the darkness, in the night. So the, the angel in charge of conception is called Lila. When the Almighty wishes a human being to be born, he bids the angel Lila 
bring me this and this neshama, this soul from Gan Eden. Now this is the supernal, the heavenly place that is called the Garden of Eden. The neshama though resents being uprooted from its divine source and complains to the Almighty, I am pure and holy, linked to your glory. Why should I be degraded by having to enter a human body? It is not as you say, Hashem corrects it. The world where you live will live surpasses in beauty the one from whence you emanated. Sorry, you are fashioned for the sole purpose of becoming part of a human being and being elevated by its deeds. Now, how is a human being elevated by its deeds? And why would this world be more beautiful than Gan Eden? And the reason is because it's in this world that a person has the opportunity to study and fulfill the Torah. Not in the spiritual world, not in the animal realm, only as a human being. So it's the greatest incarnation that a soul can have, is to be a human being. The Almighty subsequently compels the soul to merge with the seed for which it was destined. Even before the fetus is formed, the angel inquires of Hashem, what shall be its fate? At that point, the entire future of the unborn child is preordained. The Almighty determines whether it is to be male or female, whether he or she shall be healthy or suffer from some sickness or handicap. His appearance, the degree of his intelligence, as well as all his mental and physical capabilities. Moreover, all particulars of his circumstances are already decided. Will he be wealthy or poor? What shall he possess? And who will be his future spouse? We see that all details of a person's life are predestined. However, there is one exception. Hashem does not decree whether someone will become a tzaddik, a righteous person, or a rasha, a wicked person. Each one decides how to fashion himself by means of the faculties and capabilities that were preordained for him. So this is something that we should really think about very very seriously. Because so many times we condemn ourselves or we get into judgment on ourselves or we become jealous of someone else because we don't have what someone else has. We don't like our fate in the world. We don't like how we look. We don't like these things. And if we can understand that all of these things were decided for us before our souls even came into the world, it kind of changes our perspective. It's a way that we can come to an acceptance and peace because we come to an acceptance of Hashem's will in our lives. So in the book of Jeremiah, the ninth chapter, 22 through 23, the prophet explained, so says Hashem, Let not the wise man pride himself on his wisdom, nor the mighty man on his might, nor the rich man on his riches. But let him who praises himself take pride in this, that he knows me, that I am Hashem who exercises chesed, loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on the earth. For in these things I delight, says Hashem. So a person should not feel pride in his intelligence, his strength or money, for these qualities are not of his own achievements. Rather, they were divinely decreed for him before birth. 
There is only one field of endeavor in which accomplishment results from the individual's effort. Whether and to what extent he will study Hashem's greatness by delving into his Torah and emulating his ways, to the degree in which he succeeds in this endeavor, he has actually accomplished something for himself. So that's something that we should really think about, especially as we embark on a course of studying Torah. This is something that we are really doing for our souls, a decision that we make for ourselves. The degree that we we put ourselves into it, that we devote ourselves to it, this is the only thing. I mean, this is really amazing when you think about it. This is the only thing that we could claim for ourselves not how much money we have not our fame and fortune not you know our beauty nothing because those things were given to us it's only how we devote ourselves to the study of Torah that we consider ourselves successful or not successful in the world now how is it that we study the Torah while still in the mother's womb the child is taught the entire Torah he is shown a vision of both Gan Eden and Gehenna, and the angel in charge of him entreats him, Become a tzaddik, do not be a rasha. So he's saying, Be righteous, do not be evil. When the child enters the world, the, ch- the angel strikes him on his lips, and you wonder why you have this little indention under your nose, on your lips. The angel puts his finger right there, and he just says, and he causes all the Torah knowledge previously imparted to him to be forgotten. Nevertheless, that knowledge was absorbed by his subconscious mind, enabling him to retrieve it during his lifetime. So here we are in a Torah class, and you think, that sounds familiar. And as we're learning Torah, what is it? It's not really learning it, it's remembering it. We're remembering the Torah. We're remembering what Hashem wants us to do because our souls know it. We, we learned it from very, very, very early on and then we had to forget. So we're remembering. And so this is a miracle. This is a miracle of the soul coming into the world and how the soul comes into the world. This is the holiness of the soul coming into the world. And in truth, a soul coming into the world like this is more miraculous than the splitting of the sea the splitting of the Red Sea now the Almighty appointed the angel in charge of pregnancies and conception and pregnancies as we learn but he himself we're told in the Midrash directs and supervises childbirth so we have all of these laws about the mother after she has the child and then she brings the sacrifice to the temple and all that it's very important because children coming into the world is a very important thing it is Hashem himself who directs childbirth and it also there are two other things that only Hashem himself directs rain the falling of rain and this is also oh my goodness this is also um, includes um, how we earn our living because rain falling is what farmers depend on for their living 
And the next thing is the resurrection of the dead. That is not an angel in charge of this. It is Hashem himself. So the Almighty directs these actions in accordance with our merits and our prayers. These things about childbirth, the rain, we're supposed to pray for rain. It is, it's one of the things that we're meant to do is pray for rain. And the resurrection of the dead. And the resurrection of the dead is associated with the redemption. This is what we're talking about. The dew of the resurrection is redemption. So, this is the about, this is the whole thing about um, the child coming into the world and how miraculous it is. It's, it's very miraculous. Now, the woman would come. The laws in the in the parsha was that the woman would come with two sacrifices. The one sacrifice was called the Olah sacrifice. And the other sacrifice was the sin sacrifice. So why would a woman have to bring, obviously if she's going to thank Hashem for the birth of this child, that's understandable. But why does a woman bring a sin offering? There are two reasons why a woman that are proposed by the Midrash about why she would bring a sin offering. One is that when a woman would would be giving birth, she would be in the midst of pain and she could say things that later she would regret. So, in other words, she could actually be making a vow. I will never do something. I never want this. That later she regrets. So, automatically, every woman brings a sin, a sin sacrifice Maybe this woman did not do it, but to cover the woman who did do it so that she's not embarrassed, that she's not singled out, every woman brought a sacrifice, a sin sacrifice. But there was a second reason. And the second reason is that she brought a sin sacrifice that is proposed by our sages, that she brought a sin sacrifice because of the sin of the first woman. Now we're told in Midrash that in the beginning, the way it was meant when Hashem created man and woman, that it was intended that a woman would conceive and she would give birth right away. And she would give birth without pain. Totally without pain. She would conceive and the child would be born immediately. Well, after the fall, and we call it the curse, there would be, there was a time, a gestation time. And all creatures have gestation periods. All creatures. It was because of the sin of Chava, of Eve. So, there is the gestation period and travailing in pain. So the woman brings a sin offering also for the sin of the first woman. That we are women and we have experienced now the result of the sin of the first woman and so we're bringing the sacrifice for the sin of women and at the same time like all sacrifices when they would bring the sacrifice it was a prayer there was an intention that there should be a change and so when we would bring the sacrifice with the thought of the first woman's sin what are we thinking of again 
we're praying for, again, things to go back to the way they were before the sin. That there should be a forgiveness, a complete forgiveness, which there will be one day. A complete forgiveness of the first sin of woman. And that is bringing us back to a state of redemption. The state of the world before there was a fall, before there was any sin in the world. So again, here we have this child coming into the world. This soul coming down from God Aden. It's giving up this beautiful existence to come into this world where it will obviously travail. And he knows it because at the time when the soul stands before the throne of Shem, he sees his whole life. He sees who his parents are going to be. He sees what body he's going to have, what illnesses he might go through, what hardships he might have, who his children will be, who his spouse will be, who his children will be. He sees all of these things. And Hashem holds him there until he says, Amen, and he accepts it. So he's coming into this world, into this fallen world, this world that has problems, with an understanding of, I'm coming into this world for a reason. But, he's joining the effort. His soul is coming into the world with the purpose of joining the effort to bring us back to the state before the first sin. So it's all of us, all of the souls who come into the world are all connected in this effort that we're making to come to redemption. So the next thing that we um, we go to in the Parsha is about the law of Brit Milah. And the child has to be, the little boy has to be eight days old before he is able to have a Brit Milah. Now one of the reasons that he has to be eight days old is a similar reason of a baby animal having to be eight days old before it can be sacrificed. Because a Brit Milah is a type of sacrifice. So a a baby boy has to be eight days old mature before he can be circumcised. And another reason is because during that eight days he goes through one Shabbat. So he is like made Chodesh. He's made holy. He's sanctified by going through one Shabbat. And the Midrash puts it like this. The Almighty rules Unless a child has been face-to-face with Queen Shabbat and absorbed its sanctity, he is not ready to undergo Brit. And so, what happens at a Brit Milah? There's a special chair set for the Angel of the Covenant. And the Angel of the Covenant is no other than the Prophet Elijah, who appears at every Brit Milah. And what else does he appear at? Do you know where else we set a chair for the prophet Elijah? Or we set a place for the prophet Elijah? Well, he also has a special place at the Seder table on Passover. The prophet Elijah is supposed to come. We have a special place for him. And so he is called the Angel of the Covenant. And he's also, here we are, on Passover. The people of Israel are are 
coming into a special covenant with Hashem as his special people. So now we're going to get to the whole idea of what the Parsha's name and the next Parsha's name is Tazria. And the Hebrew word actually for leprosy is Tzara'at. There's actually no such disease in the world right now as the biblical Tzara'at. But in order for us to have it a little bit simpler for me to say it, I am going to use the word leprosy. Now, I don't know if any of you have seen lepers. I had never seen a leper until I went to India. And I thought about all of these parshos that I had read all my life about lepers. But leprosy and the biblical leprosy are not the same thing. Rabbi Raphael Hirsch notes that there are obvious differences of the symptoms of the disease of leprosy and the divine disease. And he goes into um, the different ways that, and it's very detailed, and so I'm not going to go into all of the details. But he talked about all the different ways that they were different. Um, What's really interesting is that the disease, leprosy, Sarat, made a person unclean. And so he was not allowed to be a part of the community of Israel. He had to be outside the camp when they were in the wilderness. And he had to be outside a walled city during the time of the people living in the land of Israel he could live inside an unwalled city but he could not live in a walled city and the leper himself in Hebrew is called Metzora which is the name of the next Parsha now it's interesting to note that although we do have cases in in the biblical text of non-Jewish people becoming lepers and I'm going to go into some of those cases in a minute, non-Jews are never considered in the category of Tameh, which means unclean. So a non-Jew is not, does not have to be inspected or isolated. If he would get this disease, he did not have to be inspected or isolated. That was only Jewish people. And another interesting thing, according to the halakha, is that even if a non-Jew converted while he had sara'at all over himself, he did not have to be inspected, he did not have to be treated in the same way as if a person of the house of Israel had sara'at. So, the only reason that we would say this, the only reason that we bring this out, is to show that this is not a regular disease like um, a communicable disease that people get normally like leprosy of today that is a communicable disease although it's not so easy to catch it I, I have to tell you that's what I did find out in India although it looks horrible when you see the people it really does look horrible 
but it's not so easy to catch it. So you don't have to be afraid of them. But the um, but the biblical leprosy is something that each one of the laws about it had to do with some type of sin, had to do with what a person had done. Now I'm going to go through this list of different sins or faults which a person, a Jewish person, could have committed and would could have gotten thera'at, would have gotten this leprosy. Now one of them, the first of course, is serving idols. There was a prohibition against serving idols in deed and in mind. And so a person who was guilty of serving idols could be punished with leprosy. Now according to Midrash, that is what happened to the people who worshipped the golden calf. That they were, the worshippers were stricken with leprosy. Now the next one is the sin of immorality. Now this is a sin that is a very severe sin and because it can bring um, what is called in Hebrew a mumzer in English it's called bastard but it's not the same thing at all it's a mumzer is the product of a forbidden union that's all that means a child is born it's a tragedy when a child is born of a forbidden union so in the in the Torah we have an example of when a person committed a an immoral act, immoral act or intended to commit an immoral act and he was stricken with leprosy he was stricken with thraat and that is the story of Pharaoh when he took Sarah from Abraham and he had immoral intentions toward her remember the plague was on his whole house it was on his whole house and Sarah actually had to pray for them to be healed or Avraham prayed for them to be healed before they left but they were stricken with leprosy because Pharaoh had committed this immorality okay and then another one is um, murder so although a murderer might be might be pardoned by heaven his tshuva his repentance and his regret of the deed will not bring back the slain victim and so we're told that a murderer might be also afflicted with the suffering of leprosy Hilul Hashem which means the desecration of God's name is another one in which the person can be stricken with leprosy and blaspheming the Almighty blaspheming God and the example is given of Goliath and how Goliath mocked not only the people of Israel he was mocking the God of Israel and so the Midrash says that right before the stone hit Goliath in his forehead that leprosy broke out on his forehead right there as the, right before the stone hit him this is in the Midrash because he had blasphemed the name of God now here's one that probably if you have been a student at all of, of the Bible you probably remember this one and this is the story of King Uzziah Uzziah maybe you 
are more familiar with that way of saying the name. And what did he do? He acted in a capacity that was not permitted to him. He thought, if it's a high thing for a priest to offer up incense to Hashem, how much more so would it be for a king? How much more honor would it be to Hashem for the king to offer incense to him? So he went into the sanctuary and he wanted to offer up incense. And the high priest, Azariah, and his Kohanim, his priest, other priests, rose up to prevent him. But Uziahu was adamant about it. He said, no, I'm going to offer incense to Hashem and you cannot prevent me. I'm going to offer incense. And so he, he insisted he was going to do so. And he became leprous. The disease broke out all over him. Now this is actually in the written Torah in the book of Kings. He is called Uziahu, the leper king. And because he was a leper and he never repented, he was secluded from the city. His son had to rule in his stead while he was still alive. And because he was never healed, he had to remain isolated until his death and he could not be buried in the tomb of kings because he was a leper. So these are some of the incidents uh, that are actually written about in the Torah. And then um, another on the list is conceit. Because the transgressor who is conceited presumes that the Almighty's glory does not fill fill the world. He presumes that he is equal to Hashem. That's what conceit is. And so this person can be stricken with leprosy. And um, one of the most commonly associated sins with leprosy is called Lashon Hara, which means speaking evil. And we're going to talk about that in more depth. But this is in the list. The example of this is in the book of Bamidbar in Numbers, chapter 12, verse 2. The story of Moshe's sister Miriam when she criticized Moshe and Hashem struck her with leprosy. Now her criticism did not sound like it was all that terrible. But yet it was criticizing her brother. It was daring to speak against or in a critical manner against her brother. And she was not even doing it behind his back. She was doing it. She was going to him with Aaron and saying, well, don't you think that since we do this, then you should do it since we are married you should certainly be married and she had been talking to Aaron about it too and she had been talking to other people about it too and then she did go to Moshe and this is one of the prime examples of Lashon Hara that is used when we're studying the subject and Hashem's answer you know Moshe prayed for her to be healed and Hashem's answer was if her father spit in her face wouldn't she be ashamed for at least seven days so she would be out of the camp for seven days. And interestingly, 
Later in the book of Leviticus, this is the period of time, the, the minimum period of time, that a leper has to be separated from the people, is this seven days. And then he can be examined by the priest. So the next thing on the list, and the list is almost finished, is the evil eye, or acting miserly or begrudgingly. And this is something, this is a case where it is not the person who will get the leprosy, but his house. You've heard about a leper's house. In the Parsha, it talks about when a house gets leprosy. Because the rule was that the person would then have to take everything he had and set it outside. So if he had been saying to his neighbors when they came to borrow um, his shovel, he would say, I don't have a shovel. They would come and they would want to borrow uh, a bowl. I don't have a bowl. So they wanted to borrow some wheat. I don't have any wheat. Then leprosy struck his house and the law said he had to put all of his possessions outside. So his neighbors could see, yes, there's the shovel, there's the bowl, there's the wheat. He said he didn't have because he was being stingy. And so this is a sin for which the house gets leprosy. And we're going to talk about how the progression of leprosy in a minute and how these things um, are listed in the Torah, Parsha. Then there is taking a vain oath. In the book of Kings, there's a story of the prophet Elisha. He was a prophet in Israel at a time when the Amorite Aramites were the enemies of Israel, the, the people of Aram. And there was a general in Aram who was the, a high-ranking official and the general of the king. And his name was Naaman. And he had leprosy. He took ill with leprosy. And in the, in the household of Naaman was a Jewish slave girl. And she told Naaman's wife that there was a prophet in the Shamron in Samaria named Elisha who could bring a healing to Naaman. I'm sure you've heard the story. Naaman went to Elisha and Elisha told him to go and dip in the Jordan River seven times. And so he went and he dipped in the river seven times. I mean, making a long story short, and so he wanted to give Elisha a gift. And Elisha said no, he wasn't going to accept it. <coughs> and then his servant <coughs> Gehazi ran after Naaman after Naaman had left and said Elisha had um, changed his mind and he did want the gifts he didn't want the clothing that he was offering to him and so he he went and he hid the clothing so that he would have it and Elisha knew what he did and of course the um, the servant Gehazi swore that he didn't do it swore that he, he didn't and so the leprosy from Naaman came on Gehazi 
Look, what was his sin? His sin was swearing a false oath. And they were told that even further, that he, when he had gone to take the staff, remember when the widow's, I mean, when the uh, woman's son had died, the Shunammite woman's son had died, and Elisha told Gehazi, take this staff and go put it over the boy's face and speak to no one. On the way, speak to no one. Well, Gehazi didn't go on his way and not speak to anyone. He went along his way and the people that he met, he went, can you believe it? He thinks this thick is going to actually do something. And so, he did two things. He spoke evil about his master, Elisha. That was one thing he did. That was the first thing he did and he kind of got away with it. Or it looked like he got away with it. And then the next thing he did was swearing that he had not gone after Naaman and gotten these gifts. Lying, swearing a vain oath. So for these two things, the symptoms of Sarat, of leprosy, came on Gehazi. I mean, uh, yeah, Gehazi. And not only that, we're told that even his children, his sons, had leprosy. It passed down because of his speaking evil against his master. Now, the interesting thing about this, about um, the progression, I was going to tell you about that, about the progression of the leprosy that it would be in the house, it would be on a person's clothes, and it, did, and it could be on the person himself. When we look at it like this, it's like a warning that it would be on the person's house. This is kind of at a distance from him. So what was the law? The person would have to take those stones, he would have to scrape it. If it came back, then he would have to take those stones, actually take those stones out and put new stones. And then, if it came back again, he had to completely destroy his house. And those stones were taken to an unclean place that was designated as an unclean place. Now, I'm not sure about this absolutely, but while I was in Israel, I heard it from somebody while I was in Israel, that the dumping ground for these stones, these leprous stones from houses, was, was in Gaza. And I thought that was really kind of interesting considering everything that has happened now. But that was what I was told while I was in Israel. Then the next thing that would happen, the leprosy is coming a little bit closer to the person because he hasn't repented. So it gets into his clothing. This is a little bit closer to him. It's a warning. Getting a little stronger to, to change his ways. And then finally it would be on the person himself. And it was a warning for the person. And it was a suffering. It was unpleasant. It was very unpleasant. He had suffering in his body, but it's actually a kindness from Hashem because it's a warning for him to be able to repent. Repent in this world and pay for his sin in this world so that he would not have to pay for it in Alam Haba, in the world to come. So this is how we can look at this kind of suffering also that it is a kindness of Hashem that he's warning the person repent um, 
Think about what you're doing. Do things in a different way. Um, do you all hear me? I, I scrolled down and I saw that Hesed had written sound with a question mark. Can you hear me okay? I've been talking for a while and okay, good. Alright, good. So really when we look at it like that and we think about and think about it, when you think about the whole idea about the soul coming into the world. The soul coming into the world for a purpose. He wants to live in a he the purpose is for him to live a pure life. And it's a struggle. From the time you're a small child and you're growing up, you have to work on yourself. It's not you're not born into the world with it all together. And so Hashem puts these things into your life to help you to rectify yourself, to help you to come to repentance. And this is a theme of the chapters on on leprosy. That it sounds horrible. I mean, it sounds really, really disgusting. And if you have this sore, and if you have these hairs, and the priest says to examine you, and all these things, all these little tedious details that you read in the written Torah, and you think, ugh, that just sounds horrible. Yet, you have to know as you're reading Torah, as you're studying Torah, that there's not one word, not even one letter that is unnecessary. So we have three chapters here in the book of, of Leviticus whose main focus is this thing of leprosy and about purification. There's a reason for this. And one of the big, one of the big lessons of it is that we increase our faith in Hashem that we repent of our sins that we come to him that we want to purify our lives now I want to talk about this last thing in this chapter in this parsha, um, Tazria in the Midrash talks about there are ten levels of trust and this is the development of a human being now we started out with how a soul comes into the world now this is how a soul develops in the world there are ten levels of trust well, first a child comes into the world and he's a suckling and he only knows the security and nourishment of his mother's breast so he totally relies on her and she's the center of his world as the child's intelligence develops his world is still centered around his mother and he considers her the supreme source of strength and and security but it's a little bit more than just nourishment just food but it's everything that he everything is his mother the growing child begins to realize that the family and his mother too are dependent upon the father's support he therefore shifts his trust and confidence to his father he admires him as the ultimate source of power he looks to his father he admires oh wow so his, his admiration his love has shifted he still loves his mother but it shifts his, his circle broadens a little bit to include the father the adolescent becomes increasingly self-reliant he often goes through a stage in which he believes he is the master of his own fate 
that his prosperity and success in life depend upon his chosen profession or business and the industriousness and investment of time with which he pursues it. Or, if he doesn't work, he relies on other human beings, thinking that his support is dependent on them. So this is an adolescent way of thinking. My support is dependent on my job or it's dependent on these people to support me. That's the adolescent. Eventually, he realizes that there are areas in life which are beyond human control. For example, health and sickness, individual or national catastrophes, and so on. He will then set his faith in the Almighty in those matters, entreating him to be spared from evil. However, his faith is incomplete, and the prophet decried it, saying in Jeremiah 2.27, In their time of trouble they say, Arise and save us. A higher level of recognition is a person's refusal to endanger himself for the sake of making a living or engaging in a trade that is injurious to his health, trusting that Hashem will provide for him even if he abstains from such occupations. So a higher level of faith is a person who will say, no, I'm not going to take a job of doing something really dangerous. I'm going to trust Hashem is going to give me something more appropriate appropriate. So he's not going to take a job working um, on a high rise building or in the in a mine or in a an unsafe mine or something like that. He's going to trust Hashem to give him something better. On a higher level yet, he does not believe at all in worldly causes, realizing that they cannot benefit or damage him they neither provide him with a living or diminish it. Rather, all events are caused by Hashem alone. The reason for his engaging in a trade or profession is motivated only by respecting the Almighty's wish that a person not sit idly but do some work. So this is a person who knows that this occupation is not my source. Hashem is my source. But Hashem wants me to work, so I'm going to occupy myself by doing this job. As his knowledge deepens, he realizes clearly that one occupation does not give him a living more than a second, and that all the facets of his life, his financial position, his health, and so on, have been determined in the best possible manner by Hashem. He will therefore constantly thank and bless Hashem for the tragedies as well as good fortune and will never desire that which is not his lot. So this is the person who completely connects with that place of the soul of understanding that soul's um, what that soul understood when he stood before Hashem's throne. And he knows that everything has been determined for him by Hashem. Fully connects with that. He's cognizant of that. So many of us are, most of us, are completely unaware of that. So this is the next level. Then the highest level of faith, the ultimate recognition that a person's true evaluation of the fleeting nature of this world with all its occupations and the awareness of how great is the next world which will last forever. He will then take delight in thinking about and studying Hashem's greatness 
occupying himself with Torah study rather than exerting himself in worldly occupation. He trusts in Hashem, the Almighty, to provide for him. And this attitude makes him a bin olam haba, so he is a son of the world to come. This is the ultimate, where he completely engrosses himself in the study of Torah and he is not connected with the things of this world at all. And this is a level that only very, very few are able to attain. But it's something to look at. I mean, all of us are somewhere here. Somewhere on the, in this list is all of us. And all of us have been... I mean, I look at this list and I can see myself in each one of these things along my li- uh, the path of my life. And so all of us have been... I mean, none of us have skipped these steps. It's just a progression of us, of our lives as we grow in faith in Hashem and our awareness becomes greater. Our circle of, of um, caring for the other becomes broader. And that is the point of this whole project of the, na- of the Noahide Nations is that we should have our awareness broaden, our consciousness um, increase, and our caring about the people of the world get broader and broader and broader. So, thank you for joining me for this very first class, and I would like to hear what do you think. Does anybody have any comments? Just one moment. So does anyone have any comments, any questions? If someone has a mic, I can go ahead and let you um, take up the mic and verbally ask the question. Would you like to ask a question with the mic? I'll give up the mic for you. Uh, can everybody hear me? Um, thank you, Miriam, so much. It was a wonderful show. It was a really great, so deep uh, insight. Um, and uh, really, I mean, uh, I, I will certainly in my show um, pick some of this up and uh, uh, apply this to, uh, more to help. So thank you very much. Well, thank you, Anna. And Anna's shear is going to be on right after this one um, it, um, in 25 minutes. She's going to be introducing us to concepts in healing. And um, I'm looking forward to that. Of course, I'm going to have to go out on an errand. I'm sorry, but I'm looking forward to being in Anna's class in the upcoming weeks because I've, um, I know that she has some wonderful things to share with us. So does anybody else have some questions or comments maybe about this subject? I know that it's a very deep subject, the whole idea about the soul coming into the world and the purpose of the soul. But one of the reasons that I wanted to go into it, I want you to see how when you read Tazria and Metzora, the written Torah, it just 
it's one thing. When you read it from the written Torah, it's one thing. But when you have the Midrash with it, you need to have both of them together. And I hope everybody could see that. That when you have the Midrash with it, it just brings it alive. It adds to it so much that you don't really see it in the written Torah itself. Because you'll see all of these laws about a woman having a child and bringing a sacrifice and being unclean for so many days and then what she can do and, and then you go on to the next thing. But, but in the Midrash, it talks about the beauty of the soul coming into the world. The beauty of what that sacrifice that the mother is making is really all about. You know, it gives you the, not only the, the what, but it gives you the how and it gives you the why. We're seeing all of these aspects of all of the questions being answered. So we can see that the written Torah is sort of like an outline that gives you the high highlights. It gives you the high points. And then you have it filled in with the oral Torah. So, does anyone else have something to add? And please do visit the website at noahidenations.com and um, if you look at the whiteboard there is a schedule for the June classes and of course if you look at the schedule for virtual yeshiva you will see our schedule for the May seminar and I hope everybody will be attending all of the classes for the May seminar and sign up for the classes for the June yeshiva and all of those are over here on the whiteboard. All of them except Saturday, I'm sorry, I couldn't fit that in, are on the whiteboard here. So I hope we're going to have a lot of interest and a lot of uh, people wanting to enroll in the classes and go with us through the year as we're learning about uh, learning the how to study the Torah and we're gleaning all of these wonderful treasures from the Torah. Okay, um, I do see the question. I, I didn't see it first. Um, Gideon's spy. Um, on the browser, you see the um, the month of ER. Well, that has my website right there. That's just one of the items on my website. And the month of ER is the first thing that we studied in the class. Okay. Um, Um, actually, Shira, there is a question about that, about whether the, the neshama attaches to the baby's consciousness at conception or whether it enters it when it's born. But how attached is it, how attached it is to the sea, we're not really sure. But we do, but we are told things like the angel holds a light over the child's head and he sees from one end of the universe to the other. He sees Gan Eden, he sees Gehenim, and he learns all of the Torah while he's in the womb. And this is on the soul level. And so 
we could say that the soul is learning all of these things the soul has all of this awareness whether it's actually literally in the child or not is not something that's really um, clear when, when the soul comes into the child is not actually really clear but that soul is assigned to that body so it's just as though it is because from before conception this is what the Midrash says from before conception that soul is assigned to the seed that will become that fetus and this is what what I was talking about whether it's actually in the seed or not is not really the question but it is attached to or it's assigned to become that that body go into that body okay um, we can't skip to the whiteboard can you get it free okay here's the whiteboard can you see it now okay the second question does the neshama choose the baby attaches itself to um, no the what we learned what we learned from the midrash is that Hashem makes that choice the neshama does not make any of those choices for himself the only thing that the neshama can actually choose is whether he is going to be righteous or whether he is going to be wicked. That's what we're told by our by the sages. Everything else is determined by Hashem, and Hashem holds the neshama there at the throne of Hash, uh, before His throne, and he and the neshama has to say Amen before it is released to go into the world. He has to accept it. So all of the things that are going to be his lot in the world, he has accepted. He has said, Amen. He's accepted the will of Hashem. So through our whole lives in this in this world, what we're doing is we are going getting back to remembering what we were taught before we before we came into this world, what our souls already know. That's one thing. And also we're getting to that point where we can come back to that submission to Hashem's will that we had at the moment when we accepted our lot when we come into the world and that's the teachings of the sages on this Midrash okay so if the Nishama chooses to be wicked it cannot have um no, a person would have a or toe. It's just that he chooses whether in this life he makes a choice whether he's going to listen to his Yitzhar Hurrah or his Yitzhar Tov. He makes that choice. But the angel before he's born keeps saying, Be a tzaddik, be a tzaddik, do not be a rasha. But it's still up to, that is the area of free will. For a person has the free will to choose whether he's going to be wicked or he's going to be good but like I was saying last Thursday night in my class that is really only illusion because ultimately there's only one will in the universe and that is Hashem so our choosing to be to be wicked or choosing to say I'm not going to pay attention to Hashem's will is really illusion because it's only for a period of time that we're allowed to do that and then we're going to we're going to be forced to accept Hashem's will on us through punishment or 
whatever we go through. And this is the, okay, I'm going to give the mic over to um, Anna. But this is the whole idea of understanding the oneness of Shem as well, is submitting to his will. Yeah, I just wanted to make a comment on that, what, uh, that, uh, what you were telling us, that uh, it, the baby is learning, <laughs> learning in the uterus all the Torah and uh, everything, and uh, then an angel comes and, uh, and uh, he pushes his finger on the mouth, so that uh, the baby is forgetting everything. It's very interesting uh, to know that this point uh, that you actually see b uh, below your nose, this is a very important point in Chinese medicine. It's called GV24, uh, uh, and it's a point to get people back to consciousness. It's a uh, point for first aid. So um, it's basically getting back into consciousness. Wow, that's really interesting, Anna, and I'm sure that you're going to be able to share with us a lot of things just like that, that on all levels make the Torah just come alive. The truth of the Torah just come alive. So, does anybody else have any more questions on this, on the Parsha? Okay, Hasid? You made a comment about the uh, soul in the Shema. I've heard it said that the Neshama was built in pairs, male and female, and that we truly have a soul mate. And I wonder, is this true for Jewish people, or is it true for Noahides as well? And if it is true, how do we know who that soul mate really and truly is? Well, it is true. Um, and one of the things is that the ultimate is if we can find that person. But the one thing that we should know is that there are no mistakes. If you find yourself in a marriage with a person and you're going through hardships and so on, there's something that you're having to work through. Both people are having to work through together. And this is something that's really difficult because most of the time, most marriages you see are difficult. It's very difficult to be married. Most people have problems with each other. But if they can understand that they're doing a work together, that they're doing a rectification work together, and that each of them needs the other soul, to the other soul for them to do that work, you know, each of them is helping the other one do that work, even if it's painful, then it helps with, the, with your perspective. And then there can come a point in time with a relationship where the work is finished where it's over and then you're able to move on one way or another and this is true in a lot of relationships it's true with friendships it's true with whatever human relationships we are in that there are no mistakes that people come into our lives for a reason sometimes that reason it'll be different reasons sometimes those reasons are very very complex and they're difficult to really know all there is to know about them and sometimes we have to do a lot of looking back and understanding them in hindsight but when we come to a high place in faith I believe one of those things is that we're able to look at the relationships in our lives in this way as being 
gifts from Hashem as being holy things helping us to refine our souls and that each of those people in our lives are teachers on some level are teachers you're right many partners are not willing to engage in this common work that is true and that's one of the reasons we have such high divorce rate now the Torah does give provision for divorce so divorce is not always the wrong thing this is something that we a lot of times we want to say this is wrong every single time this is right every single time well some of those some of those ideas are true some things are always wrong and some things are always right but not everything and divorce is something that there is a provision for in um, in the Torah marriage is a social contract but on a higher level on a spiritual level like I said there is work going on if we can understand that there's work going on and that this person is in our life for a reason then it will help our perspective and our will help us to be able to um, go through whatever it is in that relationship that we are going through and then again like I said there are times where Hashem releases us from that relationship the other person decides or you decide that you don't want to um, do whatever it is that is required and so you're released from that relationship so it, it's not a real simple subject it's a very complex subject Hesed. but the Midrash does say that at the time when our souls are being instructed before the soul comes into the world before it's born that the person who is going to be your future spouse is selected now the highest thing is if you can find that perfect person that was selected for you but along the way there is a possibility that there could be you know other people that would come in in the meantime and it would be difficult to find that soulmate and like I said this this is a subject that is very very involved the RE writes about it quite wrote about it quite a lot at length so does anybody else have something to add or a question And by the way, um, we are getting rain right now, so, okay, your other question, um, why do you think a Jewish neshama attaches to a, uh, well, it will be a non-Jew, a goy? Um, there can be a lot of reasons. One of my, one of my most incredible teachers I studied with in Spot was Rabbi Natan Gemedza and he was born in South Africa he was a prince in his tribe in South Africa he was a linguist who had learned 13 languages I mean he was just this most brilliant brilliant man and he converted to Judaism he was one of the most incredible teachers I ever learned ever ever learned from and one day I was at his house for Shabbat and he said 
the challenge of every Jewish soul and then he looked at me and he said and notice I said every Jewish soul not Jewish person is to make his way back to God and some some souls have a longer journey than others and the reason for that would be different for each person why did that why did he need to be born in this African tribe as a prince in this African tribe I don't know I mean I can't really tell you I, I could guess but I can't really know the mind of Hashem why he would say your soul is going to be born to this couple in this African tribe you're going to be born to this African king and you're going to be a prince of your tribe and then you're going to go to this school in Italy and you're going to see this person writing in Hebrew you're going to be fascinated and you're going to make your way to Israel there are a lot of opinions about how that happens and why that happens and but one thing is that when that person converts when a person converts he does not have the past the background of anti-semitism that a person who was born Jewish has for centuries and centuries and centuries so he comes to Torah with a different perspective and another thing that happens is his family that he's born to his neighbors his friends his nation you know his the people he's born to see him attach himself to the Torah see him attach himself to the Torah in such a way that he's willing to give up everything in his life to be able to go to the Torah and that has to have a message for these people and and you're right Anna is right about this too that converts are a like a bridge between Israel and the nations because a convert can understand what it's like to be non-Jewish and what it's like to be Jewish they lived in both worlds and so it's like you don't really even belong in the non-Jewish world and you convert and you're you're never really going to belong in the Jewish world either there's part of you that is still with the memories of being non-Jewish and so you're a bridge between the two um, the, what we're told what the Ari told, says in uh, Sefer Gilgalim is that when we're in this world the only levels that we attain are the first three that we perfect the first three levels of our soul and don't make a mistake of thinking that this is a small thing this is an enormous thing it's a very very complex in, uh, deep thing that we perfect the first three levels of our soul and then after that when we get to the level of Haya our souls go up and we don't need to incarnate anymore in the physical and so some of the rabbis may come down as great souls coming down to help us like the great lights that have come down to help us and this exists as well that they agree to come down it's almost like these perfect souls that come down to help the rest of humanity and you know what I'm talking about and not all rabbis It's and some of these people may be not rabbis but they're great saintly souls that come down almost perfect people 
and very very few but some of these people are necessary in each generation as you know okay this has been a very interesting um, conversation uh, well that yes that's one that's one uh, group but there, those are the hidden ones the 36 the Lamadvav are the hidden ones but there are some who aren't hidden at all some great souls who are the great lights of our generations aren't hidden at all Well, Shira, I invite you to come back to my class next week at 7 o'clock Central Time, um, 8 o'clock, it was 8 o'clock Eastern Time. And you're right, Anna, um, Ray recorded the class, and he's going to be recording the next class as well. So I would suggest, Ray, that you make a break, you know, you uh, turn off the recording, though, and then start up again when Anna comes on, so it will be a different file. So I'm going to wrap it up right now because I, I've got to go out for a minute. But I really encourage everybody to stay in the class for honest class because just like she was telling us about the place on the lift, it is going to be fantastic, the things that she's going to, to share with us. And, um, and I'm looking forward to being in her classes every single time I can. So thank you for joining me. And I'm going to have to say goodbye to you right now. And I will see you again on, um, oh, thank you, Shira. And I will see you again, hopefully, on Thursday night at 7.30. We're in the class, and it's called Spirituality for the Nations. And we've been studying, for a long time, we've been studying the story of The Seven Beggars by Rebbe Nachman. So, I hope to see all of you in the class on Thursday, and thank you for being with me in this class. And please, stay in the class for Anna. She's going to really be a wonderful blessing, I'm sure, to all of you. So, Lahitra Oaks.